Welcome to another episode of Dragon Road, a podcast on China's rise in the world, brought to you by Tabad Lab. My name is Arif Rafiq, and I'm your host. In recent years, China's diplomatic corps has taken on a more combative posture internationally, especially on social media platforms, earning the moniker "Wolf Warriors," a term inspired by a Chinese action film series about the heroic overseas operations of Chinese special forces. Such behavior seems to have accelerated during the era of Donald Trump, with Chinese officials taking on Americans and others in a style the former American president would maybe admire or envy. Perhaps the most famous wolf warrior is someone familiar to our Pakistani listeners, Zhao Lijian, a former counselor at the Chinese embassy in Islamabad, who now serves as a foreign ministry spokesperson. And has been the subject of a number of media profiles, including on the BuzzFeed website and more recently the New York Times magazine. In Pakistan, Zhao offered an aggressive and full-throated defense of the Belt and Road-linked China-Pakistan economic corridor, trading blows even with Pakistani critics of the program. Globally, he rose to fame, or some would say infamy, when he got into a Twitter spat with former Obama administration National Security Advisor Susan Rice over racism in America, and when he suggested that the U.S. military brought the coronavirus to China. Now, while this diplomatic pugilism over social media is a relatively new phenomenon, that's not exactly the case with the rhetoric or tone that we see coming from Beijing. In fact, this combative style of diplomacy is actually as old as the People's Republic of China itself, and it's the subject of a new book by our guest, Peter Martin, a defense policy and intelligence reporter with Bloomberg News in Washington. Peter previously served as a Bloomberg correspondent in China. His new book, China's Civilian Army, is an essential study of the history and culture of the diplomatic core of the People's Republic of China. We're very glad to have him on. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So before I, I get to our first question, I just、uh, wanted to say that this is a, an excellent book. It's it's probably one of the the best released on China this year. It's it's just so lucidly written,、uh, in a way in a way that is accessible to even to those who aren't really familiar with China. And at the same time, it's it's based on primary source research in the Chinese language, and to be to be able to do both、um, is not an easy feat. So I just want to congratulate you on on what, in in my view, is a really superb book. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say so. You're welcome. And so many of us have come to know of of China's so-called wolf warriors. You know, these are outspoken diplomats who often engage in behavior on Twitter. That one might call trolling,、um, you know, and many of our listeners are in Pakistan, and and they're familiar with、uh, Zhao Lijian, who who served as a counselor at the embassy in Islamabad, and kind of honed his his Twitter skills there,、uh, and you know, one could say that he's he's among the leaders of of this quote unquote wolf pack. So the the core argument of your book is that this this wolf warrior type diplomacy. Is not really new. It actually has ample precedent in terms of the PRC, the People's Republic of China's history, and and that's very much reflected in the, in the term you've used in your title, China's civilian army. So I'd like you to start by helping our listeners understand where this phrase comes from, what is its significance, and and how has it shaped Chinese diplomacy even till today. Yeah, sure. So, so when the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949,、uh, China basically had no diplomats to speak of.、Um, Zhou Enlai, who was China's first foreign minister and premier, had had a, a small group of, of foreign affairs officials with him for the last couple of decades,、um, but. You know, really, it was a, it was a handful of people, and other than that, they started out with a kind of ragtag group of peasant revolutionaries and fresh university graduates,、um, people who who really didn't have any experience with international diplomacy at all. They also had an additional challenge, which was that 
the People's Republic, the new government, um, was pretty suspicious of outside contacts and of, of foreign influences and worried that those might undermine the, the regime's um, control at home. And so Joe came up with this idea, which was that China's new diplomatic corps would, would model itself on the People's Liberation Army, which had just won victory in China's uh, civil war against the nationalists. And I think the core you know, idea behind that was that the, the, the PLA is a party army. It's loyal to the, the Communist Party, um, not directly loyal to the Chinese um, government, the Chinese state. Um, and it, you know, it demonstrates unwavering discipline. So the idea was that uh, the, the China's diplomats would demonstrate kind of a similar discipline, a similar loyalty to the party, and that they would also show a degree of kind of fighting spirit uh, modeled on that kind of martial ethos. So, so yeah, like you said, that idea was really there from the start. When we look at that early period of the People's Republic, it you know it comes after you know what some call a, you know a period of, of national humiliation. Uh, you know, starting with the end of the the Qing Dynasty, the unequal treaties, the loss of Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, so, how did that shape? the that sense of humiliation how did it shape the early diplomacy of the prc and to what extent does it matter today even for china as it is has emerged as a a great power yeah that's a great question and you know i think um this idea of national humiliation sometimes it's it's too easy to just write it off as propaganda you know for for China's first generation of, of diplomats after the revolution, humiliation was often really a lived experience. Um, so, you know, I think of, of one example of um, a, a guy who would end up being China's ambassador in, in Paris, Wu Jinmin. You know, when he was a kid in Nanjing, he was playing outside the, the French embassy and he actually had dogs set on him by embassy staff. And, you know, the guy later ended up uh, representing China in in Paris and and you know that that the the contrast there between the the new strength that China had but also this very acute um, awareness of of how weak China had been um, and and how vulnerable on a personal level many Chinese citizens had been I think that 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 stayed with the government for a long time and it's it's really informed. Um, some of the the intense sensitivity to slights, um, the you know the obsession with making sure that China is treated as a full equal of the United States and is never snubbed in any way. A lot of that um, that sensitivity kind of stems from that sense of humiliation. I think it also um, kind of extends into China's foreign policy priorities. So Taiwan was uh, was ceded to Japan after. The first Sino-Japanese War, and and the, that island has kind of become a symbol also of China's humiliation. And you know, in, in uh, Li Jiaoxing, uh, China's former foreign minister, wrote in his his memoir that China, unlike any other major power, has not yet realized its its uh, its full territorial integrity. And so there is this sense that um, even as China grows stronger in the world, it's kind of lacking something in terms of, of how complete it is as a power. And a lot of that does stem back to that sense of humiliation, as you mentioned. Mm. So it continues to have an impact on, on both its strategic culture as well as its uh, diplomatic culture. You know, when we look at the, the history of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of, of the People's Republic, it is in many ways a biography of the Javan Lai. Uh, so why don't you uh, talk to us about his legacy, um, how he shaped uh, the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You know, he was a monumental figure in, in, in the People's Republic, but you know, talk to us about his, his legacy and, and how he shaped the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and not just in terms of developing uh, this uh, civilian army concept, but also you know, other aspects such as the five principles of, of peaceful coexistence. Yeah, I, I kind of think of Joe as the founding father of PRC diplomacy, and his his position in the foreign ministry is comparable, I think, to to maybe that of of J Edgar Hoover with the FBI. 
you know, this, this kind of figure who had a, a vision for how the organization would work, how that would fit in with the, the larger infrastructure of government in China. So, you know, Zhou was uh, one of the early members of the, the Communist Party. Um, he spent time in France, Germany, England, um, spoke multiple foreign languages, was a, a very smooth operator, but was also capable of, of great ruthlessness when he, he needed to be. And he, you know, he survived at the very top of Chinese politics for decades, right through until his death. And he, you know, he had long periods on, on the wrong side of Mao, but he, he kept his positions and uh, that, that would not have been possible without a great uh, degree of political acumen. Um, but it was really Joe that was behind this idea of um, China, China's diplomatic corps functioning like um, a civilian army. And, and, and that ethos, as you, as you mentioned, really does continue through till today. I remember having a conversation with a, with a diplomat in Beijing and he said, you know, in China's foreign ministry, you can, you can criticize Mao, you can criticize nearly anyone you want, but you, you can never criticize Zhou Enlai. And so there is this real um, sense that Zhou is, um, is, is revered um, still. Yeah. And so you spoke of uh, Joe's um, political acumen, this capacity to survive um, in what is, you know, is and to some extent remains an authoritarian, uh, paranoid political system. And so, you know, he, you know, functioned as a diplomat, but had to, there was also that survivability aspect and that um, sagacity uh, to be able to survive um, multiple purges. So I'd like you to talk a bit more about that delicate game he had to play in terms of appeasing Mao um, and how that those skills remain relevant for for Chinese diplomats even today in the era of Xi Jinping. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's true in a lot of political systems that when uh, there's a period of um, sort of domestic political introspection and, and, and turmoil. Sometimes it's, it's diplomats who are blamed first or suspected first of, of being disloyal. You know, that was true in uh, the 1950s in the United States when members of the State Department were accused of being communists. Um, and it's been true, you know, and I, and I think it's, it's even more true in a, in a government system like China's, where there is this strong suspicion of, of foreigners and foreign influence. Um, and so, you know, Joe had to tread that line with Mao. He he set up um, a kind of culture of, of secrecy and caution inside the, the foreign ministry, a, a style which one diplomat described as controlled openness in terms of the way that diplomats would interact with the outside world. And, you know, that, that came down to asking permission before diplomats acted, uh, you know, closely following the lead of, of um, top officials and making sure that they always used um, identical or very, very similar sets of talking points. And I think most um, emblematically, this, this buddy system um, where Chinese diplomats would move around in pairs, which... Um, dates actually right from the founding of the ministry in 1949 and, and continues till today and has been, you know, implemented with, with a kind of new zeal under uh, President Xi Jinping. And the idea is that if a Chinese diplomat goes for a meeting, there'll be another Chinese diplomat there to just kind of keep tabs on things. And actually in the, in the context of China's political system, sometimes uh, Chinese diplomats even, even welcome that because it, it gives them a way to show that they would be on reproach. You know, if they're accused of being disloyal, they can say, well, you know, this other person was there and they can vouch for the fact that I didn't divulge any secrets. But, you know, um, so in institutionally, uh, the way that Chinese diplomats function is really very different to um, many of their foreign counterparts, even if on the surface, um, some of China's best Chinese diplomats can look pretty similar to to uh, to their American or, or European counterparts, some of the time. So, talk to us about the the pros and cons, at least you know, in terms of China achieving its own interests um, of that that type of you know internal policing, as well as restraint in terms of its uh, diplomatic core. 
in one sense, it may produce a level of uh, uniformity that add, you know, that helps um, produce kind of coherence in, in terms of uh, the output of the various elements of government. Uh, government, uh, And at the same time, um, you know, diplomacy is really an art. And so to confine it to um, almost a kind of robotic or scientific approach, I think really denies diplomats um, their true potential. So could you talk about, you know, how the, you know, China's own political system and, and the party system, how that, uh, the impact of that on the ability of its diplomats to really um, serve China's interests in, in the best way they can. Yeah, so so I think, um, you know, you, you rightly point out that there are some advantages to this. Um, China, um, you know, faces this world which is increasingly leaderless and, and which many of us as observers kind of think of as increasingly chaotic. And yet when it comes down to China's most important core interests, there is an incredible level of discipline around messaging. You know, I, I don't think there is uh, a, a, an official in the world who has any doubt about what uh, China's stance is on Taiwan independence or the status of Tibet or Hong Kong. Um, so China's political system really is incredibly effective at hammering home those most important messages um, to, to the leadership. Uh, I think, you know, a kind of related advantage to that is that in negotiations, Chinese diplomats are better than most um, those of most foreign governments when it comes to presenting a, a united front and a united team. You know, if you, you think back to the Trump administration's trade negotiations with China, it was very clear to, to everyone involved, including the Chinese government, that Peter Navarro had a different set of hopes and expectations to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, uh, or to, you know, to President Trump himself. And um, that was something that, that Chinese interlocutors could look onto as um, a kind of opening and a, and a way to um, play some advantage. It's, it's, not, it's not impossible, you know, these, these these conflicts do exist in the Chinese system, but it's much, much harder to discern them, let alone to um, capitalize on them. And so I think that, you know, those are really uh, the core advantages it has. But as you say, I think, uh, I think the disadvantages end up outweighing those. So diplomacy really is the art of persuading others that they should act in line with your interests. And um, at that art of persuasion, Chinese diplomats can be really quite limited. You know, they come to the table uh, for the reasons I, I mentioned earlier with a very well-defined set of talking points, and they will stick to them with incredible rigor. They won't alter even the, even the kind of tone or style of those points, let alone the substance. And they're really given very, very little leeway to um, kind of massage the messaging in a way that might be persuasive to foreign audiences because they're always focused on the audience back home. Um, and that's, that's always true. That's true of Chinese diplomats at their best. And it's true of Chinese diplomats, you know, when they're at their most uh, wolf warrior-ish as well. And I think particularly at the moment, well, you know, where Xi Jinping is talking about China's place in the world and um, how China stands tall in the East and all of these kinds of things, Chinese diplomats kind of repeat that messaging and it, it ends up bewildering and sometimes, you know, intimidating and worrying foreign audiences. So that's a, that's a pretty big disadvantage, I would say. Mm. You know, the, the wolf warrior mystique kind of gives the impression that the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is, um, and Chinese diplomats are very powerful. Um, but that really isn't the case, right? Um, you know, in reality, um, you know, there are, I mean, that's the case with, you know, with any government, there are competing institutions within a bureaucracy and all that. But uh, talk to us about the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and how it has to, who are, you know, the other competitors in terms of the power game in, in Beijing, um, you know, the CPC, as well as other ministries. And, and you know, from a comparative perspective, um, you know, how does it fare, you know, vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say, the State Department and, um, and, and, and sort of the, um, the power game in, in Washington? 
Yeah, I think um, you know this is this is a really important point, and uh, Chinese diplomats kind of play a, a paradoxical role, I think, in the country's political system because you know, as you suggested, um, the foreign ministry is not a government organization that carries a huge amount of of weight in the Chinese system. The the military is far far more powerful. Um, you know, so is the state security and the public security apparatus. The, the propaganda apparatus is incredibly powerful and influential. And the, the party center itself has a whole array of organizations and think tanks and advisors um, to help it conduct foreign affairs. And so, you know, the, the foreign ministry isn't, isn't powerful on that kind of um, interagency conflict model that bureaucratic politics model that we'd sometimes think of. But it does play this very, very outsized role in representing China to the world. You know, uh, Chinese soft power and its cultural industry is very, very heavily sort of curtailed by the the outsized role of the Communist Party. Chinese business elites don't have very much flexibility to, um, to speak out with their own voices, you know, as we saw in the recent crackdown on, on Jack Ma's activities. China's leaders themselves will often talk to international gatherings with a kind of mix of, you know, platitudes about globalization and quotations from Karl Marx, which don't really chime with foreign audiences. And so on a lot of issues, it ends up being the foreign ministry and the foreign ministry spokespeople in particular, who are the face of the Chinese state on these crucial and developing international issues. And so it it, it kind of plays an, an undersized role in bureaucratic politics and an oversized role in representing China to the world. You know, when you look at uh, China's in that initial period in the in the Deng period, um, when it began to open uh, itself to the world and, and uh, establish diplomatic missions, including in the West, uh, it seems to me that, um, you know, one of the primary objectives or one of the primary tasks of, of the missions was to really learn about the outside world and appropriate these lessons for its own reforms. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that, but uh, would you say, and, and if you do, you know, would you say that is a strength of its system? Um, you know, you've mentioned in your book, the anecdote of um, China's first ambassador to Ireland, learning about the, the, the free trade zones there. And then that uh, seems to have uh, inspired uh, the SEZs or the special economic zones in Shenzhen and, and elsewhere. So, um, you know, there's often talk of some of the more nefarious aspects of China's, you know, let's say appropriation or uh, stealing of intellectual property. But, you know, this is a kind of a cultural diffusion, intellectual diffusion that is legitimate. Um, and would you say that that um, uh, still goes on to t- today or, um, and, um, you know, how significant was that in terms of that initial period of that opening in the Deng era? I mean, I think it was incredibly important in the in the Deng era. Um, and there was, as you said, this this remarkable infusion of of knowledge and expertise um, that, that took place. I don't, I don't know if I would see Chinese diplomats as kind of leaders in that process. I kind of see them more as participants in a much broader process of learning that was going on, um, you know, whether it was professors heading overseas or students studying in the US. Um, early on, Chinese diplomats played a larger role simply because regular Chinese citizens couldn't get overseas. And so sometimes it was Chinese diplomats who were kind of on the front line of learning about capitalism. They, you know, they saw things like, um, uh, you know, diplomats reported seeing the first white weddings they'd ever seen in their lives or, you know, uh, China's ambassador to, to the UK during Margaret Thatcher's government, uh, his, his, his kid got sick and he realised that, um, you know, that the, the UK National Health Service was going to pay for everything and started to kind of rethink, hmm, you know, maybe these capitalists aren't quite as extreme and exploitative as, as we first believed. And so that really was very, very important. But I think, you know, this guy was called Kerhua and was a, a really remarkable figure. But I think is what's interesting when you look at the experience of him and others was that they really had to push the diplomats working under them to um, kind of 
it, to participate in that learning process. So he actually talked to the embassy staff in London and said, look, I know that you have been used to lying to each other all the time during the Cultural Revolution, but now I need you to take a, you know, a frank assessment of the reality and speak truth. But uh, that's not always the easiest thing to do in a political system that uh, is is quite suspicious and, and paranoid. And so Chinese diplomats have definitely um, uh, partaken in that that learning process, but it's it's something that really needs to be directed from the top. And I don't really see that impetus happening now under Xi Jinping. The focus seems to be far more on ideological conformity, on studying Xi Jinping thought on diplomacy, on uh, promoting China's models as uh, as an alternative to that of the West and mm. seems to be a little bit less on um, kind of absorbing foreign ideas and, and looking to change its own system. So Mao, uh, as you noted in your book, um, talked about working with this, this vast intermediate zone uh, in scenario, I guess, that might correspond to, um, you know, what was once the the non-aligned movement areas, um, or you know, even to today, you know, the, the developing world, Asia and Africa. Um, would you say that um, China's engagement with the developing world um, is a success story? Um, and uh, you know, if it is, um, you know, what would you attribute that to um, China's ability to empathize with uh, countries that? Or you know, at a certain point uh, that had been at a, was at the same point in, in terms of the developmental process. You know, even into the late seventies, China was a, a very poor country. Um, so we have this kind of um, you know this targeting of the zone, and it seems to be remains an area of focus uh, with the launch of the BRI uh, and you know certain institutions and like uh, the FOCAC summits and all that that the outreach to Africa. So I'm wondering, what is your your net assessment of that outreach, which you know far precedes the establishment of, of FOCAC and, and the BRI? Yeah, I think you know you as you said, China sees it as an incredibly important priority, and I, I think if you look at the language that Chinese diplomats have used as they've watched the Biden administration get closer to uh, NATO, uh, work with. Five Eyes partners on on the China threat, and uh, you know, start to start to use America's alliance system, and and you've seen um, other elements of the West, you know, the the European Union's investment deal with China starting to look unlikely. Um, as all of those things have happened, uh, China has sort of talked about how well you know the West is a minority in the world now, and uh it's it's uh you know we we maintain strong ties with the developing world and so this is an incredibly important part of the rhetoric of chinese diplomacy but i think that the the record and practice is much much more mixed so you know on the on the kind of positive side of the ledger i think there are um countries which are still very very receptive to um chinese infrastructure spending and an economic partnership and and China, uh, you know, kind of correctly identifies that as a as a top priority of of, of those governments when it comes to um, their own priorities, and has been much more effective than than Western nations in in recent years at kind of leveraging economic diplomacy to its own ends. But then I, you know, you look at some of the targets of of wolf warrior diplomacy ranging from politicians in Venezuela to Papua New Guinea, and I think most importantly in India. And you, you kind of think, well, you know, despite all of these promises of infrastructure spending, it's, it's hard to see China's engagement with the developing world as an unmitigated success story. And the reason I single out India is, you know, this is a country with a billion person population, a huge potential market for Chinese firms, for Chinese technology in the future, um, with a, a strong relationship with the United States and a developing security relationship with uh, the Quad nations. And yet, even as um, you know, the, the West started to take a more united front against China, uh, the PRC seemed to double down on its um, 
activities on the the India-China border and to to really alienate uh, Indian political elites. And it's quite hard for me to to square that activity with um, you know this image that China's leaders promote of uh, China being a friend to the developing world and 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 having isolated Western countries in a in a minority. Continuing on that thread of China's relations with the developing world, um, you know, going back to the five principles of peaceful coexistence, you know, one of them is this um, policy of non-interference in the affairs of other countries, and that uh, continues to be. Um, I mean, the five principles uh, continue at least rhetorically to play an important role in Chinese um, um, diplomatic rhetoric. But I wonder, you know, to what extent, you know, there. Are Accusations of you know debt trap diplomacy. There's this you know some of the aggressive um, rhetoric that you know you just mentioned, and even behavior that is reflected in your book. Um, but at the same time, I wonder um, you know to what extent does this at least the perception that China doesn't interfere uh, interfere in the affairs of countries, um, especially developing countries. Um, I wonder whether that still that ha- what is the, the true impact of that? Um, at the very least, it seems like it has a value for ruling elites in in many countries, um, you know, who uh, face the threat of sanctions or reprobation from the West on you know issues like human rights and corruption. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, is that an underappreciated aspect of China's relations with the developing world and you know, uh, and has that contributed to, um, you know, appeal not just from ruling elites in these countries, but also um, within their broader body politic? Yeah, you know, I think I think that that language um, resonates very strongly with with some political elites around the world. You think of, um, you know, Viktor Orbán's Hungary. You think of Vladimir Putin's Russia. Uh, Duterte's Philippines, but you know there are there are cases where individual leaders or individual political parties are very receptive to the idea that uh, the U.S. and its allies are far too quick to intervene in foreign countries or to criticize their um, their governance practices, and where that message from the PRC really does resonate quite strongly. I think that um, the appeal of that starts to fall down. Where there are questions of, um, you know, how how far does the the PRC actually stick to this rhetoric of non interference in in practice? Um, you know, looking back at the sweep of um, Chinese diplomacy over the decades, Zhou Enlai um, articulated this vision in the mid nineteen fifties during talks with India, and then famously um, kind of pushed the concept of the five principles of peaceful coexistence at the Bandung Conference for Asian and African Nations in 55. Um, but then, you know, within a decade in the, in the Cultural Revolution, China was um, very happy to interfere in the, the domestic affairs of other countries and, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in particular in countries that the PRC saw as hostile to its, its national interests. And that, that pattern has kind of played out on and off um, ever since. You know, there's this this strong rhetoric of China not getting involved. And that yet when you look at the activities of, of Chinese diplomats in and 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 um you know United Front workers in uh, Australia and New Zealand and beyond, um it starts to become clear that uh, this concept of non-interference is uh you know is not quite as straightforward as um the rhetoric would have us believe and i think that 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 message also flows through in in the developing world it's very clear that if you uh you know if you if if you criticize china in the wrong way your cultural industry does something that the prc dislikes um uh, chinese government officials will be pretty quick to to call you up on it and so um you know, there, there's a bit of a, a rhetoric and reality uh, distinction, I think, that, that goes on there. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to talk about some of the, the tactics and um, that China deploys in terms of um, managing uh, perceptions of it and, and the behavior of, of both partners and, and rivals. In your book, you talk about a, a range of tactics and, and tools that are used, uh, like flattery, 
um, and then performative anger and this kind of, you know, use, use, uh, use of uh, like the spectacle or putting on a show. So uh, talk about some of these, um, these tactics that are used and, and how do they help us understand, you know, you know, sort of the inside baseball of what's happening, you know, instead of just looking at things and, and at us at, at a very surface level. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the, the, the thing that unites the, the tactics that you just outlined there, whether it's, whether it's flattery or it's a, it's a focus on, you know, quote unquote friendship with uh, foreign elites who are amenable to the PRC's messaging, or whether it is these displays of, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy, performative anger, or, or however we want to label them. I think kind of the thread that runs through that is this idea that um, Chinese diplomats will consistently tell their foreign counterparts that what's happening is, you know, is highly personal and is related to them. And in fact, uh, very little of it is personal at all. You know, all of these things are parts of China's diplomatic toolkit. And so, you know, Yang Jiechi, China's top diplomat at the moment, a member of the Politburo, is capable of these kind of withering criticisms of, of foreign counterparts. Um, and, th- you know, then in the next breath, he'll be he'll be charming and friendly. Um, and he's been able to do that pretty consistently throughout his career. You know, similarly, um, Chinese diplomats will uh, hail particular individuals as, as enemies of China. And then, you know, I think of Chris Patton, the, the last governor of Hong Kong, is a great example of this. He was kind of persona non grata in China for much of his career. But when he took up an important position managing trade in the European Union, he, you know, he became a very friendly figure who Chinese diplomats wanted to get close to. And so none of this stuff is personal. Um, and for me, that's that's kind of the thread that runs through all of this. And, and, and how is China really, in, you know, different from other powers, especially great powers, in terms of doing that? I mean, the U.S. has, um, you know, its own set of toolkit, uh, its own toolkit for for influencing other countries and, um, you know, developing uh, sympathetic entities and, and characters and forces and, and throughout the world. Um, so I'm I'm wondering. You know, to what extent is this, you know, are these tactics that are used are just, you know, simply, you know, local variants of kind of universal tendencies of states? Yeah, no, there, there are, there's certainly a great deal of crossover. I think for me, the, 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 the key difference really is that the PRC, um, because, uh, or par- partly because it's, it's governed China in an uninterrupted fashion since 49 just has this incredible institutional memory. Um, and so, you know, the, the files, the literal files on these individuals will um, be used in a kind of uninterrupted fashion. You know, Henry Kissinger, for example, has been courted by every Chinese leader since Mao and um, used as a kind of bellwether of American political opinion. Um in, in a way that would be much more difficult for incoming and outgoing administrations in the US or elsewhere to manage. And so that that sense of continuity um, and that sense of institutional memory, I think, um, is, is a bit of a differentiator there. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked, we've talked about the institutional, the domestic institutional drivers of uh, influence over uh, Chinese diplomacy and Chinese diplomats. <clears throat> but there's also, you know, domestic public opinion. So this is an authoritarian system, but there are, you know, uh, the public is allowed to, um, there's a kind of a controlled uh, public space. Um, and so, you know, Chinese netizens oftentimes have uh, nationalist perspectives. And uh, as you outlined in your book, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is often the, targeted by these nationalists. Uh, they're called, you know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is uh, called the Ministry of Traders often. I think you'd mentioned calcium tablets being sent to them in the mail, suggesting that they need to grow stronger backbones. Um, so talk to us about the importance of the influence of, of public opinion. How big is this kind of nationalist base, or at least on the on the internet, and um, and how important are they are in terms of um, shaping the behavior of Chinese diplomats? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's crucial, and you know 
you talk to Chinese diplomats and you realize very quickly that they're extremely sensitive to how they're perceived online and, and whether they're seen as, as having strong enough nationalist credentials. That was true of Chinese trade officials when they um, negotiated with the, the Trump team and were sometimes compared to, to the officials who had signed unequal treaties with, with foreign powers in the 19th century. Um, and it, it was true before that, as you said, in the 2000s, when um, online nationalists said that they're the backbones of Chinese diplomats were too weak and they needed to take some calcium tablets to strengthen them up. Um, I think what has shifted uh, a little bit under Xi Jinping is that while there is still this, this very strong groundswell of nationalist opinion, um, which is expressed online and which officials track quite closely, I think that that, um, that kind of grassroots opinion has become a little bit more aligned with um, the preferences of the top leadership. Um, and I think that, you know, the best piece of evidence for that is the, the kind of shifting place of the nationalist tabloid newspaper, um, the Global Times in China, which, you know, in, in the, the 2000s and the early 2010s was this kind of, it, it was part of the, the, official propaganda apparatus and yet its opinions were often far more nationalist than uh those of the central leadership and, and often seem to on some issues almost uh you know opposition is the wrong word but almost seem to nudge the leadership in a more nationalist assertive direction where uh you know china's leaders didn't always want to follow and i think now um you know it's quite difficult to distinguish between the language used in a Global Times editorial and the way that uh, a foreign ministry spokesperson might speak in a daily briefing. And that, so that, that gap between that uh, nationalist discourse and the way that the government expresses itself has really narrowed. And I think in large part, that's a function of the direction that Xi Jinping has pulled the, the party state. Mm. And so to what extent is this, um, you know, more nationalist uh, foreign policy and, and diplomacy reflective of actual public opinion on the ground? Um, you know, it's, you know, it's by no means a representative political system. There are no, there aren't elections, but I'm wondering about, uh, you know, the extent to which does the state behavior, at least in terms of how it engages the world, uh, actually reflects the opinion of of the average Chinese person, or is that something we actually cannot say? You know, cannot really determine with with confidence. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, there as you you kind of suggest, there are some obvious um, uh, limitations. You know, it's, it's very difficult to assess what Chinese public opinion looks like. Uh, it's a it's a huge country with you know 1.4 billion person population and so clearly there's an incredible array of, of views that we need to bear in mind i think in very very broad terms um many members of the chinese public um like the new confident approach um certainly the ones who are most vocal about expressing their opinions online seem to welcome it you know after Yang Jiechi dressed down Tony Blinken uh, in Anchorage earlier this year there were t-shirts and hats and other items of memorabilia on sale um kind of commemorating his his harsh words for the US Secretary of State so there is there is, and you know there are online fan clubs for Zhao Lijian and and these kinds of things and so you know, clearly there are uh, many, many people in China who like this approach, but I think there are others who are probably a little bit quieter in their opinions. You know, actually many members of China's foreign policy elite, former diplomats and, and some current staff in the foreign ministry who are quite uncomfortable with this new approach and would like China to take a softer tone. But, you know, they, they don't have much political cover at the moment. Um, she has taken this, this very distinctive um, nationalist tone. Um, he's very clear about the role that he expects China to play in the world and the, the degree of deference he expects others to pay to China. Um, and so that, that really doesn't leave very much room for um, dissenting opinion in, in terms of the way that China expresses itself. And I think most people are kind of 
biding their own time and, and, and waiting for an opportunity to speak out when, uh, when it's safe to do so. And that was actually going to be my next question um, about that internal discussion of the pros and cons of this kind of wolf warrior diplomacy and whether China should go back, you know, at a, at a sort of, a, you know, in a broader context, go back to kind of biding its time as opposed to having this more, um, you know, really proactive um, uh, foreign policy and, and aggressive foreign policy. So could you, uh, you know, in your book, you had mentioned some of the detractors of this um, more assertive uh, diplomacy. Um, and, and so what are the, some of the complaints that have been mentioned, um, some of the criticisms that have been mentioned by some of these people who form um, you know, China's foreign policy community? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the kind of core criticism comes down to this idea that um, this, these types of outbursts and displays are increasing the costs of China's rise. You know, I think that there is a widespread acceptance that um, simply returning to the diplomacy of the early 90s um, is not really a viable option for China. You know, a kind of favorite metaphor in Beijing is to say that you can't hide an elephant. You know, China has become too big and too powerful to act like a country that's simply biding its time. But I think that a lot of the criticism kind of comes down to picking these fights, which sometimes seem unnecessary, you know, arguing with Bolsonaro's family in Brazil, uh, posting articles accusing the French government of leaving uh, French old people to die in care homes, um, you know, getting in literal fistfights in Fiji over uh, cakes which are inappropriately decorated. You know, these, these things, it's often quite tough to figure out what the constructive message here to foreign counterparts would be. And it, it just kind of comes across as internal political posturing. And so I think that, um, you know, a, a, quite a few commentators in China wish that that kind of thing could be toned down a little bit. And it, I think that, you know, Xi Jinping actually gave some remarks at a recent Politburo study session where he talked about the need for China to cultivate a, a lovable image and be a little bit more humble in the world. And I think that that does at least show some sort of modest recognition that, that China may have overstepped a little bit in its messaging. Um, I, I don't know how far that's, uh, that's going to be reflected in the actions of Chinese diplomats. Certainly Xi Jinping has followed those remarks up himself with some, some very uh, nationalist and uh, some would say, you know, hostile and combative remarks. And so um, exactly how that plays out, I think, um, I think we don't know. But, you know, certainly there, there, you know, there is a debate about um, what the right tactics are for China and, and whether the way that Chinese diplomats are behaving is, is making China's rise tougher. Mm -hmm. And uh, final question, um, you know, let's say, you know, we fast forward uh, a decade or two ahead. When we look back at in the past uh, four or five years, um, looking at things from, you know, uh, from China's perspective, do you think this period um, will have been regarded as perhaps, you know, a lost opportunity? Um, because, you know, the, the rise of this, you know, wolf warrior type diplomacy coincided with the emergence of Donald Trump and his victory and uh, this Trumpian brand of, of social communications. And so China really, it seems to me, lost an opportunity to distinguish itself from Trump's America. Uh, and, and Trump's, uh, you know, worst instincts, his worst behavior also, you know, paralleled perceptions of the ugly American as well. And so, you know, it seems to me that instead of contrasting itself, China actually kind of developed their own set of Trumps. Um, and so I'm wondering, um, you know, the bottom line, was this a lost opportunity? And, and you know, you had mentioned um, Xi, uh, Xi's uh, um, own, um, you know, recent comments. Do you think uh, there will be adaptation in the system or... You know, in the end, uh, you know, we're probably going to it's it's better to expect more continuity than, than change in terms of this uh, this diplomacy. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it, it undoubtedly has been a, a lost opportunity. You just have to look at um, 
the the polling that the Pew Research Foundation has done, where you can see this dramatic um, worsening of of the image of China before the coronavirus pandemic, and then especially um, since then. Um, and, and and actually, you know, this is this is one of the reasons that I was motivated to write the book when I um, arrived in in Beijing after several years away um, in 2017. China seemed to have this incredible opportunity to, um, you know, it was rolling out the Belt and Road Initiative, it was militarizing its artificial islands. And, and as you said, President Trump was off, uh, you know, picking fights with international organizations and insulting US allies. And there did seem to be this, this sudden window of opportunity for China. And yet, uh, for, for whatever reason, um, the, the Chinese state and, and Chinese diplomats in particular seem to be incapable of seizing that opportunity. Um, so I, I, I do think that it's hard to argue that, that it wasn't um, a kind of lost opportunity, whether, whether the party state will, um, will kind of come to think of it in official terms like that. Uh, I don't know. It, it probably depends on whether Xi Jinping allows that kind of open debate um, to happen at some point. Um, it is it is useful, I think, though, when when we think about the direction that diplomacy might head in, to consider that um, China has been capable of some pretty impressive um, pivots in the past. You know, it, it emerged from uh, the turmoil and isolation of the Cultural Revolution, only to invite Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon to Beijing. It emerged from you know kind of pariah status after the Tiananmen massacre only to launch a, a multi-decade, very successful charm offensive, which, which culminated in the 2008 Summer Olympics. And so, you know, we'd, we'd be foolish, I think, to write off the possibility that there could be that kind of recalibration in the future. Uh, it's just really hard to see it emerging um, without some fundamental shift in, in, in priorities in Beijing. And, and th- there aren't really very many signs that that's about to happen. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I think you make clear in your book that uh, China has been, as a power, as a as a country itself, and a, as a power, it's been able to. It's definitely capable of uh, this kind of adaptability and maneuverability, both in terms of domestic change as well as how it engages its its uh, near periphery and and the world as a as a whole. Okay, well, thank you, Peter. Uh, I think we'll close the podcast on that note, and, and and thanks for taking the time to join us. And I I really enjoyed the book, and and I highly recommend it to our listeners. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. So that wraps up our discussion with Peter Martin of Bloomberg on his new book, China's Civilian Army. If you're interested in buying a copy, the book has been out in America since May, and it'll be available internationally starting in August. There's actually a lot of ground we didn't cover, and so you'll benefit from giving the entire book a read. As I told Peter, the book is really written so clearly and in a way that's accessible even to those who are unfamiliar with China's history. Well, that concludes this episode of Dragon Road. On behalf of the Thabad Lab team, see you next time. <laughs>